What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Samar Abdurraqib, Executive Director of the Maine Humanities Council, author, teacher, poet, and organizer. Samar is a graduate of Ohio State University, has her MA and PhD in English Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and has taught at Madison, Bowdoin, and the University of Southern Maine. Samar, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, a great pleasure. Uh, I usually start with the question of who are you? Mm-hmm. Um, where do you come from? What's your history? How did you find your way to Maine? Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that you start there. It's my one of my favorite stories to tell. So I uh, was raised in the Midwest. My family's from the East Coast and moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio when I was a young person. And Grew up in the Midwest, in Ohio, went to Wisconsin. So I say that, you know, I traveled further into the Midwest for my uh, graduate degree. And then when it was time for me to go out on the market, I decided I wanted to be close to water. That was like, that was like thing number one for whatever reason. And, you know, I had offers from other places in other Midwestern states, but then I, I had this opportunity in this offer from Bowdoin College. And I remember flying out to do my campus talk and my, you know, the the interview process. And I had I had just watched the, the movie Shutter Island. And, you know, when you're flying into Maine, you know, you, the plane tends to go out past the coastline and then come back in. And I remember being stunned at all of the greens. They looked so different than when they looked in the Midwest. And you know, the rocky coastline and the waves crashing. And I was like, this is like that movie. It just felt so, you know, at that moment, slightly unreal to me. And, um, and I say that that, that began my deep love for this state. And so I, I came here to teach. And after three years, um, I, I had a position as a visiting assistant professor. And after three years, when my contract was over, I decided that I wanted to stay in Maine. Maine was the first place. Generally speaking, I get connected to people, but Maine was the first place that I felt deep connection to. I felt I felt committed to learning more about the state and the beauty of the state. And so, well, let's go back. To you. Let's go back to that Midwestern origin. I, oh, sure. I too, I too am from the Midwest, yeah. corn, corn fed, <laughs> uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, never saw the ocean until I was 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know that it existed in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so where specifically did, did your family of origin begin? Oh, yeah. Um, in New York City. Mm-hmm. So my uh, father had gone away, uh, was in the Air Force and he was stationed in Germany. 
And when he came back to the U.S., and as the story goes, this is the story we are told, he came back to the U.S., he converted to Islam and he went into a bookstore where my mother, who had recently converted to Islam, was working, and that is how they met each other. And they uh, married in 73. My older brother was born in, uh, in the Bronx in 74, and then I was born in Manhattan in 76. And so when we moved to Columbus, we left behind uh, so much of our extended family that who, they were still there. My, my father's mother... Um, was in New Jersey, and my mother's family was spread throughout New York, a lot of family in Queens. And so it was kind of, um, but my, my, my parents uh, really, they wanted to have more children than just the two of us, my, my older brother and I. And they, um, you know, we were living in veterans housing in Manhattan at the time, apartment, and they, they just envisioned a different life for themselves and for the, the children that they were imagining. And so I just recently learned that my father was really focused on two potential places, either Providence or Rhode Island, which I had no idea. My life would have been really different if I'd grown up close to the ocean, like more Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I don't know all the reasons that they settled on Ohio, but we moved there with another another Muslim family, uh, African-American Muslim family. And there weren't a lot of Muslims in Columbus at that time, not a lot of African-American Muslims. Um, it's very different there now, but, but I think that, you know, that, that push to leave the place where you grew up, came to know yourself, felt really grounded in, um, I just really admire that because I think that's a hard thing to do when you have two young children and you don't know anything about the Midwest. So you grew up, uh, in the Middle West. Clearly, you were encouraged. Education was a, was was there and available. You mm. obviously took advantage mm. all the way to to the to the top. Mm. What was your thesis on, for example, in in your your PhD thesis? Oh, goodness gracious! So, and let me just say that I um, am very, you know, like many people you've talked to, probably I am always indebted to an English teacher or a teacher in whatever discipline. Right, mine is an English teacher when I was a, soft, a sophomore in high school who encouraged me to write. I mean, I always read, read, read voraciously and encouraged me to write, encouraged me to take my writing seriously and to just really fully embrace my love of books in a meaningful way. So I was not an English major for a long time. I was, I was a pre-med student all through Ohio State, for most of Ohio State. Then my junior year, I decided, you know, I don't really want to go to med school. So I, that's when I really just turned my full attention to English literature. And um, and I didn't know what graduate school was. I didn't, I just knew that I needed, I wanted to do something else. And I thought, well, maybe getting, a, getting an advanced degree is a way to do that. But I, I didn't have any folks around me at the time that I knew of who had gone through PhD programs or master programs. I knew people who were going to medical school or to getting a law degree. Well, it's a bit of a jump from pre-med to uh, Emily Bronte, but but would you talk a little bit more about that? What okay. captured your imagination? You obviously made a not only a, an intellectual and disciplinary shift, but you made an emotional shift to, yeah. um, in, in terms of how you were going to yeah. focus your intellect. That's a great question. I mean, I think 
So my love for books were always there. I grew up in a house full of books. I just my 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 mother read. My mother's the the person who introduced me to Toni Morrison, to Tony K. Bambara, um, to all of the black poets and writers, to Audre Lorde, just the writers who I return to over and over again. My father read more broadly. He read all sorts of things. He used to tell us stories about how he would just, he he worked his way through the dictionary when he was a, a younger adult. So I grew up surrounded by books. I read many, um, you know, when I was growing up, that was the era of, um, in, the, in the 80s, that was the era of the library summer program where you would get to read all the books and then you could get like a, a Dairy Queen ice cream cone or what have you. I would, I would just finish all of the books by like the, you know, I'd, I'd have all my stickers done by the third week of summer. I was just, that's what I did. And and my tastes were broad. I liked fantasy literature. You know, I went through a period where I was only reading Black writers. I remember that really distinctly. I liked Virginia Hamilton, who was a Black uh, author, wrote sci-fi just for young adults. Walter Dean Myers, I just loved that. But then I also was reading the books in my house. So I, I remember reading The Bluest Eye when I was fairly young, maybe, maybe twelve. I read, I read Things Fall Apart at a young, really young age. I remember my first time trying to read Beloved and not understanding it. I read, I understood The Bluest Eye, but the Beloved, there, you know. So were your mother and father shaping your taste, do you think? They were, I would say that they were the, they didn't shape my taste, but the, but the growing, you know, the environment, just being in a house where the most prized possession that we had were books, was just a gateway. Mm -hmm. Um, So they didn't shape my taste, but, you know, the books were there. They were a gateway. They encouraged a relationship with the library. They, you know, that was like, that was the place we could go. Was your family political? Um, I think in the, in a broad kind of sense, we talked, we talked about politics a lot in the house, primarily racial politics, um, but also bipartisan politics. I remember those conversations. I remember the news was on a lot. I remember I have like very distinct memories of conflicts in Nicaragua, like that playing out on the te- on the television and the new- got the newspaper, you know, re- seeing political cartoons in the newspapers, hearing my parents talk about it. And so that was just me kind of witnessing. Um, but the more explicit conversations that we had were about were about race. I think that those are the those are the kinds of conversations that lots of black parents have with their children or families of other kinds of historically marginalized identities, or if there are children who are embodying marginalized identities, they have those kinds of, I, I hope they have those kinds of conversations, but. It's interesting. Uh, our experience is so different. And yet there's some things that, you know, Midwest, uh, mm. I too had that teacher Mm-hmm. Who just changed my life. Uh, a complete stranger who one day said, "You can do this." Mm-hmm. How brilliant was his? Not recognizing me, but just simply understanding that that was a role 
to play. It wasn't just going through the lesson plan for the day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily hitting the score, making sure that the all the standards and things were met. It was actually a, a statement of a kind of unique personal connection with a student uh, who clearly he recognized uh, in you a, a, a potential and let that happen. Isn't that so impactful, right? And you never, her name was Vicki Saunders. I will never, you know, and I imagine you remember your teacher's name. Like, it's just just the impact of being able to show someone what's possible and that all, and maybe not even right away, but it alters the course of their life. Mm -hmm. And that is profound. Uh, We were talking earlier uh, about uh, invention and reinvention of ourselves along the way as, as we mature. Do you feel you've uh, passed through a, a, a reinvention window at some point along the way? So this is how I describe, and I, I'm so I'm still like turning that idea of reinvention over my in my mind because when you said it, I thought to myself, I was like, I don't I don't tend to think of it as I've reinvented my, myself. I have just done uh, just a myriad of diverse things. I I often say that I have done done many random things. They're not all random, but they they do feel a little hodgepodge in that, you know, when I was interviewing for this position as the executive director, um, I I went through uh, an interview process with some community partners and they were asking questions and, and they were asking about, you know, what if, you know, what my vision for my longevity in this position might be. And I, you know, and I said, what is true to me and my heart that I, I am not, I think people because of the things that I've done might consider me to be an ambitious person. I'm not, I do whatever's in front of me. And that's, that's how I have operated in my life. I guess I do whatever's in front of me. And if, if, and, and I do it until it feels like it's not the right thing or, or my attention is better served elsewhere. And I'm privileged and, and fortunate that, um, opportunities rotate themselves or, you know, they come into my, into my view. And so I can, I get to, I get to make a decision and I get to choose. And that is a privilege that many people don't get to have, you know, it's the greatest freedom at all. It's a a theme that carries through all these conversations Mm. is that is the freedom to choose Mm -hmm. uh, and how important it is and how, how sad and deeply affecting it is when you realize so many people don't have that choice. They don't have that choice. Yeah. Um, when you left Bowdoin, mm-hmm. um, did you say, well, I just don't want to be an academic. I want to try to express myself in some other form of, of engagement. Mm-hmm. Or was there something mm-hmm. specific in mind? Uh, it didn't go directly to the Humanities Council I at the not. time. I did not. I also love this story because it is actually a little bit about main humanities, oddly enough. And so I did not know what I was going to do. I knew, like I said before, that I wanted to stay in Maine. And that felt, because it was healing, and I felt I was not done here. And so I thought, well, you could, uh, I didn't know anything about the nonprofit world. I had not really, I'd volunteered for many nonprofits. I'd done some service work uh, in in the domestic violence world before I moved, before I went to grad school, but knew nothing. And I heard about Maine Humanities Council. This was in 2013, in the spring of you know the early part of the year, and I and I read what they were about, and I saw that they 
at that time were primarily using academics and scholars to facilitate their programming. And, and um, I think that there maybe even was a position open for a program officer. I can't remember at this moment, but, but I put in a little application to, to facilitate because I was, I, I didn't know anything about them, but I was, I, that's the piece, the part of um, being a professor that I loved so much was engaging with students around ideas and literature. And, and so I was, I, I wanted to do that and I never heard back, never heard back, um, which is all fine and good. Right. So my time at Bowdoin ended and I didn't have work. And um, so it probably, you know, probably ended in May or whatever. And I didn't have work again until November of that year, I think it was. And so I spent a little bit of time on unemployment. Um, I applied for several nonprofit jobs, but I didn't even know how to present myself as a solid candidate for the work. I think that my resume looked like I was overqualified. I didn't have the right language. Eventually, I got a, a job at the ACLU of Maine as a reproductive justice organizer. I had already been doing some organizing work in the state around um, healthcare access and labor, uh, labor as in work. And so that was a grant-funded position, and I was there for I was there for two years. And um, the very month that that was wrapping up, like that was it was in December 2015. That was going to be my last month there. I interviewed for this job at the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, and I got that job in that same month and started there in January. And when I started at the Domestic Violence Coalition, I thought, okay, I'm going to stay here for at least five years. Then I'll be able to decide because there are domestic violence coalitions across the country, if it's time for me to leave, if my time in Maine is done at the end of these five years, then then I'll lift my head up and look around and decide, and then I'll go elsewhere. So that was 20, 2016. And in the meantime, okay, to go back to Maine Humanities, in the meantime, while I was at the ACLU of Maine, I got an email from my friend Reza Jalali, who um, at that time was working at USM. He's now the executive director of the Immigrant Welcome Center, but he was facilitating for Maine Humanities and they had asked him to facilitate a, a let's talk about it, book discussion series on, uh, I think it was called Muslim Journeys in Southwest Harbor. And he was not, he was like, I don't want to do the drive. And I, again, I love this state. I love this, I love this area we're in now, but I loved, I also love uh, Mount Desert. And I said, I will do it. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at PointedFurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Samal Abdurraqib, Director of the Maine Humanities Council. Uh, so that I think happened in 2014. I mean, uh, Muslim journeys in Southwest Harbor, Maine. I mean, it's a, it's exactly the place where the the, the, the seminar should take place. Seems to me, I would have been very curious to see who participated. Uh, but let's before we go on mm. just a minute, mm. I want to go back to a word that you used. Uh, 
about Maine in this interim period, which is the word healing. Can you remember or single out maybe even as you know it today, what were the qualities, the healing qualities that were specific to your understanding of this place? Mm. Several different things, I think. So one was just the, the the natural world. I mean, I think that I I'm I'm a citified person. Like my 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 people, my family, we are citified people. Um, I moved to Wisconsin, and I was still like, I am citified. I'm moving to the smaller place, and I don't know what it's all about. And I didn't do things in nature. I you know I did a couple of hikes here and there. Went to the arboretum. We had a lovely arboretum in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but it wasn't until I moved here that I knew that I liked the water because uh, Madison sits between two beautiful large lakes. But it wasn't till I moved here that I really understood the natural world and felt um, a necessity to learn more about it and to understand what it meant to live in, to just recognize that as a human, I am also connected to this natural world. So that is one healing just there. I think also the slowness you know, that is the story of so many people who, who come here. Not that Madison, Wisconsin was like fast, 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 but I think my dissertation process and all of that grad school felt very um, intense, pressurized. Yes. And so there was like a, there was like some sort of release valve of just the, the slowness and the, no one is vying for a lot of, you know, moving away from this like vying for intellectual superiority thing that are, or where people are like, want to quickly know, like, what are your credentials? That felt very good. And I really like, I didn't know this at the time I came to notice the longer I stayed here. I really like the way that folks here care for their neighbors. And uh, that's really the word quietude gets mentioned a lot about oh, Maine. That yeah. There's this sort of underlying calmness that is antithetical to the urgency of the city, but it's still different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like um, there's something that's, I think it has to do with the scale, mm-hmm. um, the the fact that the natural world is accessible everywhere. You mm-hmm. don't have to you don't have to make a a trip mm-hmm. necessarily to find it. Mm-hmm. It's around us everywhere here, and that's a privilege too uh, mm-hmm. that we haven't stepped on quite yet. Uh, were you writing all the time? I wasn't. I in high school, uh, that teacher who inspired me. Uh, I, I wrote, I shared my work, I entered contests and did fairly well. And then, you know, when you're young and you are, well, all of us struggle with insecurity at all ages, but everything feels so delicate when you're younger. I think I, I got some negative feedback when I was, uh, my senior year and I kind of like shut that down. I still wrote poetry through college, but I didn't share it with anyone. And then I went to grad school and that changed my ability to the ease with which I was able to just take a blank page and write something that felt creative. I learned to write in other ways and I published academic pieces. I did the things you were supposed to do. And I'm grateful for that. I had a lot of, there's a lot of privilege in my life to have my name in books and things. And so and then, I, and then as I moved away from academia, I started to write more personal academic pieces, which felt interesting. And I had other opportunities to write other things, but never back to poetry until 2017. And I 
was visiting New Mexico for the first time with my partner at the time. And we came, there was this animal that really mystified me. Turns out it was an oryx. And it mystified me because I looked at the animal and I was like, that is not an animal that is native to the U.S. Like I just, you can just tell it is a Serengeti Plains kind of animal. So I did a little research and learned the history. And, I, and all of a sudden this poem landed in my head, which had not happened, I can't even tell you, 20 years. And so I wrote this poem called Oryx and Crates. And I told myself that 2017 was like a, was a really pivotal year for me personally for several reasons. But um, I told myself that if I was going to write poetry, then I needed to push myself to do something with it. And I called it my vulnerability project. And I, for the first time ever, got up on stage and read a poem, read this poem, later on published that poem in Deep Waters, the the Sunday Portland Press Herald mm-hmm. poetry column. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I started writing poetry again. Right. Well, you can't be a writer if you can't have, can't handle the, the the answer no. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, you cannot. But I, I know that. I did not know that then. <laughs> when I was a, when we somehow was, I didn't know it then, but I I know it now. Let's move on now yeah. to the Humanities Council, sure. but we're going to have to start with the great definition, the great generality. Yes, yes, yes. What is it? What yes. are they? What are the humanities? Oh, that is a question that we're we're always trying in the in the humanities. We're we are always trying to figure out what are the, figure out what are the words that can precisely explain what the humanities are. And so, at Maine Humanities, we describe the humanities as you know when we take any aspect of human culture, cultural production, or regional culture, culture for people, um, we invite people to learn more about that cultural production um, through, you know, discussion, through inquiry, through analysis, then we say that, that you are doing humanities when you're doing that. So it's, so it's um, not just the creation of the cultural production. When I say cultural production, I mean piece of art, I mean theatrical performance, I mean music, I mean literature. It's the uh, the humanities is the 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 process of bringing in other people and making connection, bringing in other people into that conversation, making those connections. And I've always wondered about this sort of cosmic dichotomy between the National Endowment for the Arts, the mm-hmm. National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm-hmm. The same thing with you have it in the state; it's sort of mimicked in the state, yeah. as if the arts was something that the humanities are not, and vice versa. It seems to me that art is one of the most humanistic enterprises that, that we can can do. Uh, and to have these distinctions, I, I always am confused by them. But it is the form, the structure we've been, we have been given. That's right. yeah. um, I think that in some ways uh, is too bad. But I think the distinction you make is really telling because you sort of aren't as performance or art as, soul, as a kind of a singular creativity act is one thing. But what humanities does is essentially it's the, it's the next step of engagement mm-hmm. by many people with the work of, of let's say, one person. Mm-hmm. So uh, a poet writing a poem is an artistic solo, singular uh, artistic experience reading the poem and then talking about the poem and taking the hits from the people who love the poem or don't 
that's a humanistic exercise or humanistic mm-hmm. encounter. So mm-hmm. it's this idea of the adding of community mm-hmm. and joining it to the creative act that seems to me where I began to sense a distinction. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, to to I feel like I was not exactly clear when I gave the definition and you know, in the humanities, we look at cultural productions broader than just art. I think, I don't think I, I think the examples that I gave were all artistic, but we look at history and philosophy, but all of those are individual kind of disciplines, right? That, that the, I think you called it the, the humanistic work of bringing folks in to have the conversations, to make these connections and engagements with each other and with whatever is the object of study. That's, that's where we situate our work. A phrase that we use all the time is join the discussion. Mm. So when we advertise for our discussion project program, which is you know a program where we discuss literature, we often have that slogan. I don't know what to call it other than a slogan. Mm. Join the discussion. But that's, you know, we know that that's, that's what we hear from participants. Like that's where the, the kind of the magic happens. That's where they feel like they learn more, not only about the, the object of discussion, whether or not that's a, a museum exhibit, or a book, but they also learn more about each other, people in their community, people, you know. So different uh, between a lecture and a conversation. Yes, right? yes. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about now within the council, mm-hmm. uh, you, you're you funded primarily from grants from, from the National Endowment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some appropriation that comes from the legislature of Maine. Mm-hmm. What is the, what's sort of the program organization more specifically uh, today. What do you mean program organization? Well, I'm just saying uh, when you advertise, when I go to your website and I say, okay. uh, this is what we do mm-hmm. and, and uh, this is how we do it and we're inviting you to join the discussion, there's a structure for that. Mm-hmm. There must be some way that you organize the opportunities that are that you're making available to applicants. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little more specifically? Yes, yes, I can. So the, the program that we offer, we offer, uh, we have our grants program, which I can talk about a little bit separately. And then we have the programming that we offer, you know, no cost programming to, to organizations. Each of them, our grants programming and our, our grants and our programming are accessed through an application process. And we are a program-driven organization. We're a small organization. The majority of our staff are our program staff. So, you know, programming is is just the thing that we do. So you're enabling as opposed to doing it yourself. That's right. It's so interesting. We were just having um, conversations just this morning, our little strategic planning committee, the, you know, me and the board and the consultant we're working with. And we were talking about, um, and we talked with the staff about, with the rest of my, my colleagues about what it is that we do. And we we like to say that we empower folks to transform their communities or transform their relationships with each other. So we we provide some tools and we provide some platforms for that to happen. And we try to, through our programming at least, we try to take away the barriers to that. And so to that kind of transformational work. So let's stick on the program side sure. for a moment. Uh, can you give me some examples of what you think are the best ones that you, that mm-hmm. you more successful ones that you, you've done? So uh, I tend to think that our discussion projects, which again, those are, we don't like to call them book groups. We engage with more than just books, but that's the most familiar kind of 
corollary. So, but there are discussion projects. We will run roughly 90 a year throughout the state. And I tend to think that they have the most impact organizations who are offered a discussion project that either they can pick the text that they want to read or they can choose from our suggested text list and and you know we've put them together in a in a we group them in in kind of groupings that make sense and we work with over 100 facilitators across the state from all walks of life and we assign a facilitator to that reading group we send them the books. And so all the all the participants really have to do is just show up ready and curious to engage. And our facilitators, we have trained them. We do a lot of, you know, what most folks recognize as professional development for our facilitators. We just ran a querying facilitation professional development opportunity to make sure that our facilitators are thinking about trans identities or thinking about um, LGBTQ identities as they're facilitating, as they're engaging with the material. So I I tend to think that that is our most impactful, but often we hear from participants that our Poetry Express programming really moves people. So our Poetry Express, it looks a couple of different ways, but um, traditionally it is, it's it's a program that exposes folks to Maine poets, and to the the act of performing poetry. You know, some folks will use it to write poetry and to perform that poetry, but we work with Maine poets across the state. Anyone that we work with, like the facilitators, like these poets, we offer a stipend and they do a workshop for the group around reading their, here's how you read a poem. And then the next phase is to do a public performance. Are these housed in places like libraries or so they they're the facilitators and then you have the sort of the the presenters the, that are or organizations or safe homes safe places for people to congregate sure. and then the facilitator comes and that's a that's an event and is it a one-off is it is it a, mm-hmm. is it a, a month-long multiple events these conversation are all, what, such good questions so um Poetry Express, we actually collaborate with the the main state library. They mm-hmm. ever so helpful and help us find main poets. You know, we just will they'll work with the the featured poet to say, here are the things we want to look, here are the kind of the themes, and they will be able to they'll pull some poems. But uh I it's sometimes it's easier if I just give an example. So we recently had a Poetry Express event up at Fort Kent. And um, it was all about Acadian poets. And it was part of a week-long event that the University of Maine, Fort Kent, was doing. So, you know, Poetry Express was kind of inserted. And we worked with the poet Valerie Lawson, who did the workshop and then kind of was the MC for the event. And so... The workshop, I, I don't, I think happened on Zoom. I actually can't remember. I may be misspeaking. But then the event happened on a on a Thursday night at one of UMaine Fort Kent's buildings, and it was open. It becomes open to the community, and so that's what the events look like. And so I think that it becomes it's really transformative to folks because it may be the first time they're ever reading anything out loud. That's thing number one. Thing number two, I think it it demystifies poetry. I love poetry and. I think that people are often like, in my experience with working with poetry with folks, it's there's this hesitancy to engage because they were perhaps 
in their schooling or wherever I think many of us were given this idea that poetry to be good, it has to be difficult to understand. And they think, I don't, you know, this is not for me. And so what we see that ends up happening is that people want to continue with, so it is like a, it is kind of a one-off event. It's, well, you know, the workshop and then the event. Well, it also may be uh, an invitation to people to come into a place they've never been felt welcome before. I think all of those things, I think, you know, we, we did one with the Southern Maine Worker Center some point in the summer, it was outdoors. It was wonderful. I went to that event and they wanted to use it as an organizing tool to, to get to know people in their, in their community. And right now the staff person, the program um, person who coordinates Poetry Express is thinking that exact question that you asked, how do we move this beyond a one-time engagement? Because there's desire there. There are more folks who are saying, I want to keep going. So um, so that's something that we're we're thinking through right now. How can we have a prolonged engagement with these folks? Well, the other thing is that uh, it used to be that libraries were community centers, and there was a time when that sort of uh, the community center became something else. It became the it became the why, it became this, it became that, and libraries began to lose their their visitation and some sense of value. I sense around here anyway that these small libraries in these small towns now, by virtue of this kind of programming, actually enabled by Zoom in a way that that suddenly they could, people didn't have to get up and drive. Yes. They came. It didn't work badly. It wasn't perfect, but it didn't work badly. But now people can come, and now they're coming into the libraries, and these libraries are sort of revivifying themselves as program spaces beyond circulating books and, uh, and all the rest of it. Yes, um, and that's in small towns. That's a that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It really changes how you feel about the place you live. It provides a, an agency for community, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, that's that's the purpose, isn't it? Is to is to have you and me sit down in a room never met before, and have to talk about a poem. I think that's wonderful, and I think you're absolutely right. I I think that you know having to rely so heavily on Zoom really did in, increase attention um, or attendance, you know, to both of those things, to, to libraries. And I think, I don't know, I'm so excited about libraries who have been able to have some boost. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Samar Abdurraqib, Executive Director of the Maine Humanities Council, author, teacher, poet, and organizer. Let's go to the other side of the, the, the ledger. Okay, Let's sure. go to the, to the, to the grant. Yes. Uh, yeah. How does that work? So there's an application process. I always think that we are a tiny, tiny funder, which feels good. I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I think I, I, I like that we do other kinds of programming and not aren't just giving out money. So we get funding from the state that we use in our, we call it regranting, mm-hmm. in, our, in our regrants program. And we have three primary grants. We have our major grant, we have our mini grant, and we have 
one grant that's really interesting. It's the Arts and Humanities Grant. We collaborate with the Maine Arts Commission, and we're, that's the one place that we're able to fund artists, which feels delightful. Mm-hmm. It's a small grant. Our grants aren't, aren't massive. We aren't like some of the other funders, but we invite humanities organizations, so the you know historical societies, libraries, and humanities-based organizations, or organizations that aren't humanities-based organizations that have maybe have a humanities-based project. And so, you know, some that I can think of off right off the top of my head that fit that category. Um, we worked, uh, one of our grantees in Lewiston, Maine Community Integration, which is a Somali-led organization that works with folks from mostly East African countries. They were working on a, call it an intergenerational storytelling project. It was fantastic. And they were very aware of how to best reach their audiences. And we were able to fund them. Um, the USM Library was doing a, um, a queer histories, I'm going to get this wrong, walking tour. It was an app, you know, you can listen to it. Mm-hmm. I don't... <laughs> Feel like yeah. the language escapes me, yeah, yeah. but you know, and so so interesting projects that may not necessarily be coming from humanities organizations, but and then of course we will we've funded like the Denny's River Historical Society for um, I can't remember the the exact name of their of their project, but they are a humanities based organization. For example, they had a an exhibit that we funded uh, I think last year. So uh, as you're talking, two things occur to me. One is that this is a very quiet but effective way to welcome diverse communities, refugees, for example, coming into the state. And so you come from the Ukraine, you come from Somalia, you come from a place, it's a new, it's a big, uh, it's a place. You may find that there's some community connection by virtue of, of family or friends that's already there, but at the same time, those events not only are serving those people to come as a welcoming exercise, but it's also saying to people who are living in the community, come learn mm-hmm. these new people that are coming and are mm-hmm. going to be our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it's a very tactile, one-on-one kind of opportunity to welcome people into a community of, of, of friends and neighbors. Well, I mean, I think that if that's what the project looks like then sure i mean when i'm thinking about the main community integration it was very much focused on the folks that they serve so folks from djibouti folks from somalia but if that's what the project looks like then then absolutely i i i think what's exciting about it we at main humanities our priorities are to focus on folks who are underrepresented in the humanities broadly you know just broadly speaking and so what i think it does are shifting our our granting priorities is that it demonstrates that humanities can be for all sorts of folks, even if we often are still struggling to like find the accurate words to describe. People know what it is when they engage in it, and and I think just to say this project that you have, main community integration, that is humanities work. It's still about bringing people together to engage with each other, to engage with whatever is the object of study and to enhance their understanding of each other, of themselves. And it's at some point we're soon, um, I'm hoping we're, we're a thing that we have not made 
uh, a lot of progress in is is making sure that our materials are accessible in other languages. And at some point, we're going to have to grapple with how would you describe the humanities in, say, Lingala like that? And I don't, I don't know, but I'm excited to work with community members we've worked with before who speak Lingala and are able to say, oh, because of this project that we worked on or this project that got funded or this, or this uh, program that we participated on, we know what it is. We've, we have experienced it and then can try to piece together some language. And I, and I think that's what's exciting to me, making sure that everyone in Maine has access to the humanities and that it doesn't feel like it's this lofty thing that is only for a select group of people. Because that's not the truth. Uh, the historical societies. Okay, yeah. It seems to me that unlike the libraries, there are always going to be exceptions to this, I know. But there are historical societies that seem confined to a building that's opened occasionally. Mm-hmm. There may be a program or an event occasionally. From my perspective, I think that historical societies need a kind of focus and injection the way libraries have. You know, there may be a, in one town, you may have a library and a historical society, and the library is just vibrant, and the historical society is barely, barely breathing. Mm. Uh, and yet the historical society in some way is the repository of the, of the heritage, the humanistic heritage, of that place, mm-hmm. and it's closed. I know that the Penobscot Marine Museum, for example, has this amazing collection of photographic images, and it's all organized by county and by town. Mm. And so they've been doing a program where they circulate exhibits to the historical society. So now they don't have to, they don't have to have any money to do it. Mm. They, they don't mm. have to have the organization, the curatorial experience, but they can open their doors, they can hang these reproductions of period photographs of their place, and they could to try to make this uh, this place come alive and engage people at a, a different, deeper historical level of the place in which they live. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I won't speak too deeply to the historical societies because there are there are folks and there's a there's a, a state of Maine historical society or you know agency, and so I don't. But I, I will say a, a couple of things that became apparent to me as I stepped into my first position at the Maine Humanities, which was associate director, I came in as we were doing all of the the SHARP funding, which was the second round of the COVID relief funding. And when we, um, and we divided our SHARP funding into general operating support and then project support. And so in the general operating support round, that's where all of the humanities-based organizations came. So many, so many with such intense need and of course, there was not enough money to give everyone what they needed. But I learned so much about not just historical societies, but also libraries who are existing with the one volunteer. There are some historical societies that I remember seeing applications for both the historical society and the library, and they've got one person between the both of them. And so facing that reality, of course, historical societies are you know, if they don't have the funding that they need to be able to hire people to keep their doors open, you know, I think um, in terms of thinking about other projects and revitalizing, I, I think that we, you know, we, through our grant application process, we do get interesting and exciting projects from historical societies that are doing programming that 
reaches a broad group of people. But again, I think that those are historical societies that are that have a lot of support from their communities. You know, uh, I heard the phrase "strategic planning committee." Oh yes, 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 yes. Everyone has a strategic planning committee. Um, are do you feel as if uh, the Humanities Council um, over the next few years will change its focus strategically? Oh, I don't know if it's a necessarily a changing of focus. Um, what I think, and I and I and I actually hope for so many organizations working in communities is that the next few years is just a reckoning with what is and early on in the in the pan in the pandemic when we started doing programming and and, and it was all virtual and I came to the humanities council right around that time there was such a huge people were excited to gather again and now we're in a different place now people are I think we all feel it. We all know it. When we did our, when we did information gathering from our community partners and our grantees and former grantees, we heard the same thing is that people are experiencing such great loss and fatigue and, and threats that have always been present, external threats that have always been present, but are, have sharpened, more sharpened edges now, maybe. And so when we were doing our strategic planning, we were really grappling with that reality rather than just thinking about what is it that we want to do? How do we want to do what we want to do? Just, you know, recognizing the reality of broadband access, the reality of where people's feelings of heavy, heavy loss are and their fatigue and um, thinking about the ways that the state is changing, the ways that, I mean, I guess things we all already know about aging population and younger folks not necessarily staying and thinking about um, well, housing. There is this re-migration as well. I mean, some people leaving because they're sensing opportunity away. That's always been. Yes, but we now have all these. I, I had coffee this morning with a couple of young, young women, and she's coming back into Maine. That's right. 27, 8, 9 years old with a partner, wants to come in, wants to, you know, looking for work, has to find a place to live, but wants to start here. And that progressive, forward-looking uh, aspect right? is what we have to rely on. It's so interesting. I mean, I think even just, yeah, I try to drive around the state a lot, and things are it just, just changes. If you're in southern Maine, folks in southern Maine feel it in a particular kind of way, which is, is different from other places in the state. But I think it's important to know that things like housing scarcity, it is a Portland issue, but it's it, we feel it. We feel it. It's, you know... Um, in other parts of the state. So in our strategic planning, we are, we're thinking about accessibility a lot and storytelling. How are we going to continue to, to tell our story? Now we have like a very snazzy social media presence. Now we hired a, a great staff person to, to help with our social media. And, and so we're thinking about what is the story of Maine Humanities and how, how can we connect that storytelling to our mission, the story, our story, the story of the people, the, our partners that we work with, our grantees. And we're thinking a lot about accessibility and accessibility as a, as a means to ease some of the external factors that are adding difficulties to so many people's lives, like making sure our programs are accessible. Well, I mean, the whole point of it is, is vitality, and that's what we're talking about is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to run out of time. 
I asked you if you would bring a poem or a piece of writing that you would like to read. I, you did ask me, and so I pulled up um, a couple. Of the choices that are available, is the Oryx poem one? Oh, I could get, I could get that very quickly. Okay, I can read this one. So this is a poem I wrote called Oryx and Crates, and I wrote it in 2017. Oryx and Crates. One, the first time I saw you, I stopped in my tracks. You, glass-eyed, stuffed, taxidermied. Me, puzzled. You do not belong here. The sign said, do not touch. I obliged. Two, the second time I saw you, I stopped in my tracks. Driving through the desert mountain desert of New Mexico, the landscape was flat, sparse, and there you were, loping, loping. You looked at me, I looked at you, I stopped in my tracks and knew you do not belong here. Like your plains animal, right? From the Serengeti desert, maybe. Kalahari, like, do you know my friend Rafiki? Three. This is personal. I spend approximately 95 hours a week wondering how I came to be here. In present time, I trace my journey into wider and wider places, but larger questions linger. How did I come to be here? I'm cut off at the root. Four, fact. Between 1969 and 1977, 95 orcs were released into White Sands, New Mexico. Fact. There are now thousands of oryx in White Sands and the surrounding area. Fact. Annual oryx hunts began in 1974. To this day, these hunts continue annually. Population control. Fact. Between 1969 and 1977, 95 oryx were released into White Sands, New Mexico to increase hunting opportunities for game hunters in the area. Fact. Most oryx are either extinct or endangered in their native Africa. Five, resiliency is genetic. Resiliency is we up in here. Resiliency is, oh, you tried it. I only know part of your story. They run you down, hunt you down every year, but you have no known predators here. You made babies and look at your babies thrive and survive. They tried to fence you in, contain you, control through redlining, but you're intelligent. You escaped, you made babies, and look at your babies thrive and survive. Six, I never really forget how I got here and look at how we thrive and survive. I haven't read that in a long time. That's a beautiful poem. Thank you. Isn't that so interesting, the things we do? Works. We thrive and survive. That's what humanity is all about. It's the documentation of thriving and surviving. So I've got this poem that I wrote after visiting Beale's Island. So that's a very main poem. Both of these are nature poems. The title is Late Autumn Observing the Coastline of Beale's Island. And then the other one is a poem that I just that was just published, but it's more generally about the healing of nature. Where the rocky coastline meets the forest, there are places where the roots of trees cling to boulders, twisting and joining, threading themselves through one another. I want to call this a congregation. 
a place of testifying to strength and the near impossibility of roots siphoning waters from stones. Spirit work. No matter how tall or keeled over by the elements, roots join knuckle to knuckle, telling stories of erosion and of days past, of the shoreline that used to be crumbled, of the legs of relatives who used to stride and skirt the edges, vanished now. Tree limbs and arms thrust high, high, fingers bare, tense and taut, fanning out in all directions like a scene of liberation. I want to call this a ululation, a moment of lifting up in praise and shaking off when the winds barrel through and say, it is time, sacrificial, to give up all adornment and color and to be seen, vulnerable in praise, fully open in adoration of themselves, of each other. You, 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 I cannot. My, I love that word. My mouth never wants me to be great and say it. Right. You, you relation. It's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful word. Ahead, I got it. Okay. Okay. Right. Now let's do the another one. Okay. This one. This is a poem that just this week was published in Snapdragon Journal. It's called "Coded Correctly." When I am in the woods, speaking the words "liberation," "liberation," again and again. And the winds shift and the bow brings the words back to my ears again and again. And all there is is my voice and this volleying and this yes. I don't have to explain myself to the princess pine, to the tea berry and the turtle head. I can make of myself what I make of myself. Big or small, there's space enough to hold me. There is expanse. There is lay it all down here, child. There is no hush now. I am coded correctly in this place. I come as I am. Uh, this doesn't necessarily have to be in any way, but do you consider yourself liberated? No, it's a work in progress. <laughs> I think for all of us, it should be. It's probably a work in progress. Agree. I totally agree. All right, this was wonderful. My guest today has been Samar Abdurraqib, Executive Director of the Maine Humanities Council author, teacher, poet, and organizer. My guest next time will be Dean Lunt, publisher of Island Port Press, on the revival of the novels and writings of Ruth Moore, a most popular early 20th century author and profiler of life in May. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.